Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. It's the last in the series of season four, which I can't believe. And I am very excited with today's guest. Uh, She's someone I've admired for a long time. She is a biologist, presenter, uh, voiceover artist, writer, mum and fellow eco-freak, Gillian Burke. (laughs) Gillian, welcome. (laughs) Yeah, out out and proud and loud about being an eco-freak. Yes, hi. Absolutely. (laughs) Really great. Yeah, it's great to have you you on we've been talking for a long time so I've been meaning to put you on the list and, and get you on for ages yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to be I, I love doing things like this I like having good a good chat you know with, good chats um, with fellow fellow eco yeah, freaks yeah fellow <laughs> um, absolutely yeah. and I didn't realize this morning but we're recording this on uh, women in science day which is really good because I think one of your uh, your roles is a science communicator and you do it very well so it's kind of apt to have you on as the last guest of the season on women in science day Thank you. I don't. Well, this is this is a classic Women in Science Day event because my son's just walked through the room. I don't think like the door creaked open in a real kind of horror movie style way. Um, right. Yeah, you know it's it's still lockdown three in the UK. Um, depending on where people are listening to yeah. this again. And so, yeah, I've got, you know, um, my teenage kids at home trying to keep up with their schoolwork and trying to multitask and. You know, I don't want to make us, it's not a big sweeping stereotype about women's roles, but it does feel like, I don't know if it's just unique to women and certainly not unique to women scientists, but yeah, that sort of, that juggle, that multitasking and wearing lots of different hats. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I might just stop there and let all the clanking. Okay, there's shortbread biscuits being smuggled out of the room. So this is what happens when I'm busy recording things is that the kids sneak in and do things that they know I would normally say no to and shout at them about, but I can't because I'm being recorded. Yeah, but they're like, you're, yeah, you're trapped on a recording and it's fine. Well, look, this podcast, this podcast is very informal and very real, so we might not even cut that out. That's yeah, fine. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Like you say, it's, it's keeping it real. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. How have you been coping with, uh, you know, 2020 and all it threw at us? Ooh, well, you know, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm just laughing. That's a big question. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if you'd asked me at the beginning of, you know, when the pandemic really started to make its presence felt, I guess, um, mm. in particularly in, in Britain and lockdown three, that was, um, sorry, lockdown one even, um, was early spring and it was that kind of oh we've never done this before and that there was no real sense of how long this might carry on so that felt very different you know um to how it feels now and so yeah you know i'd say you know spring doing the lockdown last year in spring was a lot easier um and it was like a big experiment that's how it felt and you know there was that experience that people had of where the lockdown, I think here in the UK, especially that first one felt more complete. Um, it really did feel like everything came to a standstill. So, you know, traffic mm. fell silent and 
you know, particularly people in, in big cities and towns, um, that the first thing that we noticed was a sound, or at least that's, you know, what I, yeah. I noticed and certainly a lot of people I spoke to. And bird report. song. So that bird song and particularly in spring when all the birds out in their territory and they're super active, um, that was, you know, audible for people who hadn't ever really paid attention to it or not been able to hear it. Um, mm. I can't even imagine what it'd been like for the birds themselves <laughs> to have to not yeah. fight over the background noise of human traffic and um, human noises, human, you know, anthropogenic, you know, to use the word, um, yeah. sounds. But it was, um, so that was, you know, there was all that going on and it felt very different. Whereas, you know, a winter lockdown has been harder, definitely for me. Um, definitely, yeah, I agree. And I felt a little bit inclined to follow my own advice, which I've been dishing out liberally to people <laughs> for a month yes. now. When I was like, what's the one thing we can do, you know, to make the world a better place? I'm like, hey, everyone just needs to slow down. Don't be so busy. We use less energy when we do less and just chill. And so I've decided to try and embrace that. This this lockdown in winter is um just lower the ex my expectations of what I'm going to get done in any given day. Yeah. And, um, and just, yeah. I like you know. that advice. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I it's need, a strange one. It. Yeah. Cause I actually, there's a part of me that really feels like, you know, we're very busy people like, you know, our species generally. And there is that constant feeling of, you know, wanting to, you know, take things off your list, your to-do list and get things done. And, um, be super you know, productive be a, you know, all the live time. Live your best life, and you know, achieve that thing, and you know, live out that dream, and achieve that goal. And there is nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying don't, but it, there's sometimes there's a sense that what if we just kind of just drop, drop back a bit, you know, just drop down a few gears, yeah. and just slow it down a bit. What difference would that make? And for me, there's like almost like a very simple, maybe it's too simplistic. But a very simple idea, which is, well, if I do less in a day, um, then I'll use less energy. And, you know, energy is the thing that, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you like, you know, that, that we've, we're running into problems where our energy sources have caused issues with climate. And now we're looking for alternative energy sources. And is that still sustainable? You yeah. know, so, um, so, yeah, so there's a part of me that's like, well, what if we just did less? <laughs> it's not a popular idea do you know that's what i find really interesting is um i i find that people resist it they're like you know how how dare you suggest that i don't keep you know grinding it out every single day i'm like you're slowing down progress yeah so um but you know i i'm slightly i'm one of these people that yeah i i think if on my instagram or my social media accounts my tagline in my bio is that um, I'm working hard to make the world a better place so I can kick back and enjoy a, a beer on a plastic free beach and stop working so hard. Like my ambition is actually would be to not have to be working so hard um, yeah. in order to do what I think, you know, what little I can do to um, address some of these big issues and challenges that we face, you know, particularly as yeah. eco freaks. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Important job. Yeah. So that's, oh God, that's a long answer to how my lockdown is. 
I mean, we've we've all been through the the trials and tribulations and had our own stuff. So I don't think you can answer that question in a in a short way, really. Um, we started talking um, when uh, Nina Constable, who's been a guest on this podcast as well, um, did her lockdown online wildlife series, um, wild wild world oh, doorstep good. discoveries. Yeah, and yeah, you'd noticed my. Um, blue tip camera box and, and said, you should talk to Nina about, about that. Yeah. Um, and that was at a point where, you know, I, I asked you like, what's happening with BBC Springwatch? And at that point, you didn't know if you could even go ahead, but you've made it work um, remotely and, you know, following the restrictions and things. And a lot of people have said it's become almost a much better show um, because it's kind of more intimate or less polished and, and things. How has that experience been adapting the show, the Springwatch, Autumn Watch, Winter Watch to... Oh, do you know, uh, kind of Sean, I love the fact that you say you made it work. Yeah, I would love to take You collectively. Julian <laughs> <You're laughs> um, totally yes, solved the problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll make sure I make it known in my acceptance speech at the awards ceremony. No, I'm Absolutely, joking. Yeah. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> obviously, um, there's, there's a big team behind yeah. the watches and... Yeah, so Spring Watch 2020, um, you know, there were so many things, so many unknowns in terms of just overall, like, would we be able to broadcast at all? I, to be honest, actually, the first question was, you know, should we? Is it the right thing to be mm. attempting to do this um, when, you know, the NHS is under such a huge strain? when communities on the strain, individuals on the strain, like, you know, is this, is this a good use of resources? Is this a good use of, you know, um, all of that stuff? So, you know, there were some very fundamental yeah. questions to be asked. And I think after a lot of consulting and, you know, this doesn't necessarily involve me personally, but in terms of the team and stuff, there was a feeling that um, by the time we were, schedule to go on air there was a sense that a lot of people because of the lockdown and particularly people having to isolate um because they were vulnerable for health reasons um there would be a lot of people who were really longing for that connection with the outdoors and with the natural world so that felt like a, a good enough reason to then take it to the next step which was well technically how are we going to do this if um we don't want to move people around the country as unnecessarily we need to work in as small um, teams as possible in our different units um you know how will it work with the connectivity across all the different um locations and um you know what from a presenter point of view all i can say is the team were amazing because um once I was in position, stood in front of the camera, it didn't feel like my job was wildly different to okay. um, to a normal watch in the sense yeah. that, and I, you know, and that really is testament to that kind of organization and the, the, the kind of technical challenges that they were able to overcome that actually once it came down to it in order to deliver that content and, you know, take our audience with us um, for the ride and, you know, depending on what, where we were and what stories we were telling um, that made it possible. So, you know, that was an amazing achievement. And since spring watch, we've had autumn watch and now winter watch most recently. And each time they've, they have fine tuned the process even more. And I mean, winter watch was, um, you know, was really amazing to me how, it was fantastic, how yeah. 
how easy it felt to do, you know, to actually do the job of a presenter. So in some ways, I think my job was kind of the easiest and that all I need to do is show up and, and speak you know, to a camera. Yeah. All the other work is just like, you know, massive. And that's not sort of, you know, false humility. It's genuine. I think the team are amazing to, to do what they do. Yeah, good stuff. So rewinding the clock, we talk about your, your career in a bit, but um, rewinding the clock to kind of like where your love of nature and the environment came from. I'm, uh, I've heard a bit about it before and having grown up on, you know, essentially a wet rock in the Atlantic Ocean uh, with not much wildlife compared to some places in the world, I'm quite jealous of, uh, of your early story. So where, where did you uh, grow up and what, what brought you to the world of nature? Well, I mean, I, I guess I arrived in the world of nature. So um, yeah. I was born in Kenya and yeah. we, so, you know, I was born about 10, 10 years after independence. Um, uh, so after Kenya became independent from yeah. British colonial rule. And by the time I was born, my family had um just moved into a housing estate on the outskirts of Nairobi, which is the capital city. Um, yeah. And the housing estate had been built on what was part of a former coffee plantation. So I wasn't, so I'm painting that picture because it's not like I was kind of born out in, in the bundus or as you call it, the bush. In the wilds. You know, yeah. the wilds with, you know, elephant and grazing past me and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that that's be amazing, but that wasn't me. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, you know, housing estate, on the outskirts of Nairobi, um, there hadn't been, because it was a coffee plantation, there wasn't any established sort of, you know, trees. It was literally like bare red earth, new houses. Okay. Um, but the thing about sort of living on the equator, particularly that part of Kenya, is the earth is rich. It is so fertile. So it, it's very high in iron content. So it's, it is like an ochre red color. And, yeah. and just stuff grows like just so fast. And that, you know, because there is no pause in that because there's no winters, there's rainy seasons and dry seasons. And yes, you know, things slow down and change and adapt, but yeah. ult- ultimately, you know, the, just, it greened up very, very quickly. So th- from the point where I can remember being out and about like, you know, I was a kid long before the internet. Um, was invented, um, well, actually hadn't been invented, but uh, what well, I mean, it's, you know, been rolled out in the way that we're used to now. Yeah. And um, daytime TV just wasn't a thing, you know, it didn't exist. So, you know, there are no phones, no devices, no TV, no distractions. So, you know, what I did when I wasn't in school was I'd go outside. Exploring. Um, and outside was a mixture of some, you know, gardens that were kept you know kept but also small holdings what we call shambas where you know um vegetables vegetable patches that sort of thing and then just just kind of i don't even know what to call it because it wasn't like it was no man's land it's just that that things weren't as carefully manicured as they are like now you know and and certainly here in the uk so i had a lot of freedom and time that's what i call it to just and 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 the place to play. So for me, playing was outdoors. And my time, as long as I wasn't confined to a classroom, was outdoors. There wasn't mm. really a, an alternative. Um, and a lot of my time was spent 
um, it sounds really sad, but I was actually really happy. I was, I was, I was used, used to spend a lot of time on my own and mostly just, um, you know, plucking leaves and flowers because I was always like making some weird concoctions. I'm not even sure what the end game was, but I just enjoyed <laughs> the process of crushing leaves and crushing flowers and mixing it with water and mud and making mixing yeah. it in glue and then smelling it and then maybe having a little taste and thinking, oh, that was interesting. And then, oh, look, they're ants. And, and you know, um, so it's yeah. just, it just a series of just experiences um, outdoors, which happened to be pretty unkept in the sense that nobody had any kind of, no one imposed what it should look like. You know, it, just it was, it was free it yeah. to do whatever it wanted. Yeah. 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 And then on, you know, add to that, my, my dad really was very, very passionate about um, my brother and I having the experiences that he had um, as, as I guess a teenager and a young man, which was, I guess, a much wilder experience than what I had. So even to my dad, what we were experiencing was already quite tame and suburban. So it's interesting that progression. Mm. So he would make sure that we would have trips out to the national parks and to the reserves and make sure we went camping. And he really, so we had a lot of those experiences as well with, you know, the more iconic wildlife that people would identify okay. with, with, you know, East Africa and Kenya. Um, and then yeah. my mom was more kind of like the cerebral, you know, sort of influence in that she was a writer and a journalist um, by the time I was born, she was an information officer at the United, the United Nations Environmental Program. So okay. when I spent time with my mom at her work, and it was interesting because, you know, back then, like if there was like a childcare issue, I'd just go and sit in my, you know, at work with my mom. And um, it was her offices were, had um, overlooked some, again, just kind of, there were some very manicured gardens, but also little patches where things were a little bit wilder. And I'd mostly spend yeah. my time watching dragonflies and darters over ponds and looking at tadpoles and streams. And my mom could see me, so her office overlooked this area. But I just kind of roam around while she was at work. And in her office, she had these posters, um, like public information posters. And I remember there was one that had like a big swirly, like 70s style drop, you know, of water with this writing yes. in it. And it just said every drop counts. And it was um, uh, water conservation, you know, kind of as okay. you expect. And I remember that was probably the first real, my first memory of realizing that all was not well in the world. And that, mm. um, you know, so that was my kind of, quite genuinely that like possibly like my awakening in terms of and yeah you know that that you know the earth's resources and in, in, in various ways are are being threatened so mm. that just kind of i absorbed vocabulary like deforestation and soil erosion and desertification and water conservation that just was in my vocabulary from quite a young age because i was just exposed to it from quite a young age um, growing up in yeah. Kenya with, with, you know, the kind of twin influences of my mom and my dad in different ways. Um, so, yeah. So that was, you know, like I said, I, I guess I arrived in nature. So I never really had to go and find it. Um, yeah. And then the exposure from, you know, the, or the influence, I should say, of, of my parents and also my parents' friends and just the people around me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we definitely have a lot in common then because I was definitely, you know, that sometimes alone child, but that child that was outside, you know, turning over rocks and um, catching tadpoles and looking at them and all that kind of stuff outside all the time, you know, because there wasn't much else to do. But definitely um, my dad had an influence. He was very into nature growing up as well. But like without getting into the, you know, showcasing our age Gillian and saying I remember when this was all fields uh you know and sounding like old cronies kids nowadays you know don't really have that experience broadly do they like you're a mum I am too I'm I'm chasing your heels don't worry you know what it's a funny old thing age isn't it because um on the one hand it's like oh you know um sort of trying to cling on to that though the you know the good old days but um I yeah. actually kind of wear it with pride now because I feel like um you know I sort of think god it's it's important to have people who remember what life was like before mm. um the unbelievably rapid rise of the digital revolution and you know yeah. it, it's not even that Frankly, I'm going to just say it's not even that I'm that old. It's just it's happened that quickly, you know. Yeah. And, you know, in 10 years. Yeah, please. (laughs) I know how to spin it. Um, Yeah, you know, in 10 years, um, mobile phone technology has become virtually indispensable. Like, you know, you can't really get through life without one. And, I mean, I I struggle with that, you know. There is um, a part of me that thinks I'm brilliant. I, I love listening, you know, for me, the ability to access information, but also music, like yeah. any music you want at any point. It's like amazing, you know, cause I have the memory, the painful memory of like trying to kind of catalog all my CDs or tapes, the mixtapes, mixtapes off the radio. The radio. Yeah. Those yeah. are the days, buddy. No, um, you know, so I have to say that I, I'm really glad that I'm not having to do that anymore. And I can do playlists and, you know, and just looking yeah. out of like albums without having to really invest massively and just, you know, and it means that, I think I listen to so much more music than I ever did. So this is my other yeah. passion, by the way, is music and, and um, music and nature. It's like, oh my goodness, if I had to choose, I'd be like, please don't make me choose. Um, <laughs> Sophie's choice. Yeah. But um, so, you know, I do love it. So I'm not a total Luddite, but um, I do worry about the um, influence it's having. And particularly at the moment, you know, with the pandemic and with so much um, of our lives now being rolled out on online platforms. Um, again, yeah. the plus side is I've been able to attend more events, listen to more talks, and um, and and really kind of feel networked with a global community. All looking at the kind of twin challenges of the ecological crisis and the climate crisis and social justice yeah. issues. That has been amazing. Um, but then I found myself mind-numbingly scrolling on my Instagram and then like and then I get annoyed oh, yeah. and my kids like get off your phones I'm like oh my god I'm doing it you know and I know um, it's kind of an automatic reaction isn't awful. it just pick up your phone if you're bored and I'm I'm as yeah. guilty as the next person I mean I've caught myself watching a film on Netflix and halfway through the film I was scrolling through Instagram and I don't quite know when that moment happened that I picked up my phone and I was actually enjoying I the do film. that all the time and I was like this is yeah. nuts like you know I've got to train my brain to do one thing at a time at least for some of the day um so yeah, yeah so you know I'm not like I said a total Luddite but I do think it's important to have 
memory of life before this technology existed because it, it, it you know I don't actually feel like we were impoverished and and not necessarily um missing out on anything yeah you know I, I had a happy childhood and teenage yeah. you know that's all the teenage stuff that everyone does but you know, yeah. we managed. <laughs> to your point about, you know, generation and generation, like what was normal in nature for our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation also massively changed compared to ours and then our, you know, our children's generation. So we've just seen this crazy, crazy kind of degradation of nature over a very short period of time, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, within, um, within my lifetime, in fact, within my adult life, because um, yeah. I, I went, I started my degree in biology um, in 92. So that was the first Earth Summit, Rio Summit. And um, so I kind of chart sort of like my adult life because I'm thinking, wow. So I was an adult when all these milestone, um, you know, the first, um, the the summit in Rio, and then 20 years on, they had another one. And then the 25 years, so in 2017, which is when the warning letter to humanity, a second notice, which is a yes, paper yes. that, you know, I think 25,000 scientists um, were signatories of this, this letter, which was essentially kind of flagging that all the environmental indicators since 1992 were, had gotten exponentially worse, um, all but one, which was the ozone hole. Mm. <laughs> that was the only thing that was improving. Yeah. And man, sure. I yeah. clung on to that bit of good news. because um, know I we need thought, it. Well, <laughs> That's our evidence, though. I mean, it's more than just like, oh, it's a bit of good news. It's like that's evidence that when world leaders get together and agree on something, and in that case, so for anyone listening who's too young to remember what this was about, um, in the 80s, um, they, there was a hole in the atmosphere, what we call the hole in the atmosphere, which is the layer of ozone, which is the protective layer that filters out UV light and basically protects life on Earth. Um, was being eroded around the South Pole, um, especially. And I remember watching the news and as a kid, and there was this like rainbow colored sort of NASA image of the Earth from space looking down, well, looking at the South Pole. And there was Mm. this great big ultraviolet deep purple hole over the South Pole. And that was it. It was like, you know, there's a hole in the atmosphere. It's getting bigger and we're all going to die. You know, that was kind of how I heard the news. And I think that's probably how most people heard the news. And um, they established very quickly that, you know, the smoking gun, the the culprit was um, a family of chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons. And they moved very quickly. Yeah, CFCs. They moved very quickly to ban those. And as the ban came into force, um, CFC levels have been dropping. And then I was literally today um, reading on the news that in 2018, they noticed a, a sudden rise in CFCs and the the, hose, the hole in the ozone was actually a, had been closing. And that's, that trend was reversing because they were seeing the spike in CFCs, which they identified as some illegal um, emissions of CFCs. So that, you know, that was an amazing bit of kind of um, like chemists and environmental investigators getting together and and doing some real proper detective work to find out who was producing illegally, using illegal, yeah. illegal CFCs. So that's been stopped. And so this this report that has just been released um, that I was reading about today says that actually CFCs are now dropping back in line with what they would expect. And the Good. ozone hole is now sort of continuing that process of rebuilding and repairing so they they reckon it's on track 
to um, be fully restored to what it was pre-1980 in about 30 or 40 years. So for me, wow. this is such an important bit of um, um, like history in the making because what we can see is that, yes, we as a species have affected um, the earth on a planetary scale. Um, we actually kind yeah. of produced chemicals that ate away at the atmosphere, but with um, global like you know consensus across all nations, that was banned, and it's repairing. You know, yeah. <laughs> it can be done. It was sort of the, it can be done, yeah, with cooperation. I think it was the first time as well because you know I was um, in school at that time and you know learning about the environment. It was a new, it was sort of almost a new concept of like we need to take care of the environment. What is the environment and, and things like that. But it was the first time, I guess, the world sat up and said, you know, we're in a fairly precarious position where we could destroy the earth and actually it's our fault and, and we can do stuff about it. So it was definitely like a big realisation moment for everyone, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so do, have you have you passed on your passion to your kids or are they disinterested or disconnected as a lot are these, these days? Well, or? I mean... <laughs> so I'm just laughing I'm like where did I, don't I want to put them on the spot. <laughs> no um I if I'm honest I don't I'm, I'm pretty hands-off as a parent in terms of what they will you know what passion what they want to get passionate about I suppose um mm, yeah. the things that I will take credit for <laughs> is um when they were sort of preschool age and even for key stage one so early primary school um, they went to an ecological school. Um, so I live in Cornwall and we were just so lucky okay. to have quite a unique school called Zelda School. That's on the Lizard Peninsula or just kind of on perch, just on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall. So it's, it was a beautiful little school that still ran the national curriculum, but it was um, the classrooms were in two yurts on a corner of a farm. So it was situated in like quite an old so I guess traditional orchard. Um, oh wow! And the, the the main thing was that the kids will learn what they would have learned in a normal preschool, except they're going to do it mostly outdoors and mostly in an environment where, um, yeah, you know. It, I mean, I guess you know a lot of people look and go, "That's pretty hippie," but I was just so grateful yeah. that my kids had that chance because um, yeah. they're both now mainstream school and secondary school. Um, but I think it was just absolutely the making of them because I don't know how I'd have given them that experience of being um so comfortable with being outdoors um even when things aren't comfortable so in the rain and the wind and the cold um yeah you know having that experience I think has just set like a baseline of what what is normal for them and you know I mean at the moment I, I despair like with the lockdown and how much um they're doing on screens it's I I just honestly like I get triggered by it because I watch them and I'm just like hey your eyes you haven't blinked for like three hours um I know and you know the radiation the interaction is not I don't know I I really struggle with it to be honest um so you know I live in I don't although I live in Cornwall I don't live like in a rural sort of idyll I live right in town but we can walk down to the coast path from where I live. Yes. So I just make sure we try and I try and balance that. Um and 
yeah, in terms of, you know, handing down my passion, I guess the only thing is, I'm, you know, I just kind of bottom line, like, you know, there's certain things that I hope I raise them to be, which is responsible consumers, basically. Um, actually, yeah. that's a really horrible term. I'm going to change that because they're not consumers. We're people yeah. are not consumers. Um, but I just want them to be able to be discerning enough to make good decisions. Um, good choices. Good choices. Yeah. Because, you know, for me, like even this year, I feel like, and, and last year, 2020, just the, the you know, the, the disruption of the pandemic has really made me feel that I've like, you know, the scales have fallen away of my eyes even. I sometimes just look around me and I think everything I own has come at a cost to the environment mm. or people or both. And the, and I can't get away from that. That's like, you know, and I think I'm, you know, I, I shop responsibly, but I'll give you an example of, um, I've got this like, fish tank that I bought for my son a few years back because um, I yeah. rent a house so I can't get have pets like a dog you know so I, the fish yeah. tank was like the kind of you know consolation <laughs> of not being able to get a dog the, and um, the minimum viable product yeah. the MVP yeah. and it's a small like 30 <laughs> centimeter cube fish tank so it's not like, very big and it you know we have um, five minnows three shrimp and yeah. so it's pretty you know simple cold water tank yeah and the whole thing just really like i stare at it a lot and this is going to give you an idea of what an overthinker i am but basically i'm the same i sit in front of my fish tank just looking into it and you know time has passed it's, it's like oh my gosh so i look at it and first of all i'm i really struggle with it now because i'm like the energy that is being used to run that pump and run the lights and you know keep treating the water all that stuff to keep yeah. these five fish alive. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, there's like serious problems there with cognitive dissonance. But of course, I want to keep the fish alive. So what am I going to do? You know, so I feel like I'm in this like stuck yeah. in this kind of lose-lose situation. But more than that, um, the fish tank was purchased probably, I think it was about $45.99. But when I really thought mm -hmm. about it, it has an inter you know, an integrated pump and lights and all the kind of components, so the glass, the silicon, the plastic base, the yeah. housing for the pump, the pump itself, all the cables, the LED lights. I'm like, when I take that apart, I'm like, there's no way that just came to $45.99, plus the packaging, plus the shipping. I'm like, somebody, yeah. somewhere was in not shop. paid properly in the making of that product. So that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, I look around me now, and I'm thinking, everything I own, virtually, has come at a cost. Right. So for me, yeah. this is like having time at home. <laughs> um, <laughs> to overthink yeah. everything. But at the same time, I'm like, I think we, personally, I sort of think we do need to start thinking on that level and working on that level because, yeah. um, you know, what has become apparent is that the lifestyle that I enjoy as someone who lives in the global north um comes at an enormous cost for people in the mm. global south, many of whom I know. You know, I know um, because my family still live in Kenya and they live on the East African coast and that, you know, people that I sort of, you know, just every time I go back, I, you know, we chat. And, like, I have friends who, you know, mined in Mozambique and lost people down there. 
So it's, for me, it's right. not like a disconnected story. I can draw a straight line between my fish tank and some mine somewhere. And I think, you yeah, know, that's yeah. kind of, we do need to join the dots and connect the dots. And I guess for me, as, a, as someone who's mostly known for talking about wildlife and nature, this is the side where I sort of think actually nature could, nature just looks after itself, you know, in the sense that we don't necessarily need to understand every last inch of how the natural world works and in order to keep it working, it would do that by without us. But what I feel I need to understand at least about myself now is how human systems bump up against this natural system and what goes on there. So weirdly, although I love wildlife and I love you know kind of all that stuff like actually most of my thinking time and my writing and anything really I do outside of the watches is now really preoccupied with this aspect which is Mm. human behavior and I guess you know ultimately how do we get human behavior change um yes yeah yeah so anyway I went off on one about the fish tank but there you go (laughs) no you're grand it's a good example though because I think like it comes back to that uh thing we hear about you know environmentalism is not about everyone doing everything 100% perfectly it's about us trying to do as much as we can well um you know and I think as people like yourself and myself who are you know very passionate about the environment and, and climate change and, and nature and biodiversity, we can overthink things and we can like almost overpunish ourselves. Am I doing enough or did I make the right decision down to those tiny little decisions? But it is important. And would you say maybe that like one of the things that drives you in your career and your, your kind of professional life is trying to put some of those things right or trying to, you know, play a bigger role in getting those messages out? Because I think that could counteract your fish tank potentially, you know, if you're making a bigger impact on a wider audience and, and getting people to sit up and, and kind of recognize that those little decisions matter. Yeah. I mean, the fish tank right now just sits there as this sort of, um, this glaring thing that makes me like, it's become a sim- symbol in my house, symbol, yeah. which is that, you know, the life it supports is precious. So I have to keep that life going. But, you know, it has called into question a lot of things that I would never have questioned before, like keeping a fish tank, um, especially because, you know, when I got it, I saw it as a really nice way for my son who wanted to have like that that feeling of like he's um, the, you know, that he has a pet or some, you know, animal that he can look after and care for, you yeah. know, that's like quite a natural urge it seems to me. empathy as exactly. well right teaching so yeah. um so you know enough of the fish tank <laughs> does, <laughs> does my other work make it okay to have a fish tank I don't think so but um but you know it's there so at the moment I don't quite know what to do about it but I do think that um just kind of looking back I've just always had the feeling as a child and a teenager and even when I was doing my degree that the adults in the world had, you know, they'd got this. They were like, you know, we know there's a problem. We're working to fix it. It's going to be okay. Um, Mm. And then in sort of my adult life, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to make, you know, films about nature and wildlife because that's a really great way to get people to care. And when people care, then they'll they'll, they'll work to save it. And, um, And, you know, and I think, so I spent 
once I sort of left uni and, you know, kind of asked around, like, well, not asked around, but basically like was, I was properly in the doldrums of like not knowing what to do with how to turn a biology degree into a job, basically. Um, and I tried lots of different things and eventually, so I didn't ever really have as my plan that I was going to work in natural history filmmaking. Um, it, it was something I've kind of almost had dismissed as being too, um, like unattainable a goal to even consider. Like aspirational yeah, or something. Aspirational, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good word. Um, so I, um, as I went to Bristol University, which is where the natural history, the BBC natural history unit is also based. And I would walk yeah. past this building every day for three years to and from lectures and just kind of acknowledge that, oh, that's the place where all those amazing films get made. But never did I think, mm. oh, I could go and try and work there. And maybe I could make one of yeah, those yeah. films. Um, it, it took a long time for that penny to drop. And, um, and when it did, it was more out of, um, well, it, it didn't feel like a sensible thing to do, basically, because I just thought, yeah, it's not going to okay. work out for me. So why would I do that? And anyone I spoke to were like, oh, my gosh, like, it's so competitive to get in there and you're never going to get in and all that sort of stuff. So um, so it was kind of, you know, I did a lot of work experience, unpaid work experience. Um, and then, I, you know, when I finally started doing that work, my intention was that I wanted to make real like conservation films and films that really tackled head on environmental issues. Um, and I think for a lot of people in the industry, I know loads of people set off with that intention. And there was, there was like twin forces at work. I think one was that um, I think in the eighties, quite a few hard hitting films that were made about, especially about, you know, elephant and rhino poaching and people just yeah. kind of said, our audiences don't want that. You know, that's too gloom and doom. So, you know, we've, we've got to find a different way. Needed more kind of entertainment. Yeah, rather and than, also just something that's yeah. positive and more uplifting. Um, and I think, you know, if I'm honest, like up until I joined the Watches, I sort of felt that I'd run my course with that because I was like, I've been doing this for quite a long time now and I'm not sure this is making a difference. So I stepped away, yeah. partly because I had kids as well. And I really thought, well, that was, you know, that was great. It, it was, it was fun. And I really loved the job. Don't get me wrong. But I was thinking, I think I'm going to try and find another way of approaching, like, how do I make a contribution to, mm. you know, you know, in my time here on earth, you know, um, in whatever little way. So I had, I, by this point, had moved down to Cornwall and I was starting to knock on the door on like little, like small charities um, and organizations. And I remember having a conversation with Surface Against Sewage about plastics. Um, oh, yeah. And so at that point, and I was also, you know, looking to volunteer at Cornwall Wildlife Trust. So at this point, I'd, I was still, I was a stay-at-home mum and I'd been out of work for quite a long time and I really thought, like, I had no route back into filmmaking. And I wasn't even looking for the route, if I'm honest. And, um, but because I was sort of starting to have these conversations with organizations like Surface Against Sewage, who do amazing work on plastic pollution campaigning and climate as well now, um, yeah. but also Cornwall Wildlife Trust, that's when I started coming across stories. And, and there was one story in particular about this tiny, obscure species of hermit crab that had been wiped off, like made extinct in Britain after an oil spill in the 60s, and then had made this very spontaneous return. Um, following a kind of citizen science survey run by Cornwall Wildlife Trust, mm -hmm. they found this species 
And so that was the story I t- kind of took to the watchers because at that point I thought, well, if they go with some, a story like this, which is about natural recovery, it, you know, it kind of, for me, it, it, it's told the story of pollution, but also about the power um, of nature to recover with the right, given the space, given the right ingredients and taking that pressure off it. Um, and I thought that's the kind of story I'd like to tell. So that was sort of my route back into working in TV and natural history filmmaking. And so you pitched that story to the watchers. Yeah, it? yeah. So I took that story to them, and if I'm honest, was not really very hopeful that they would go with it because you know it's an invertebrate; it's smaller than my thumbnail, and um, yeah. and it's obscure. It didn't even have a common name. Um, invertebrates are important. Oh my gosh, trust me. <laughs> That's my, like, you yeah. know, I'm all, you're a bit of an invertebrate I'm geek, aren't you? Constantly banging the drum about, like, you know, the invertebrates and just anything that people find creeping, crawly. I'm like, I'm there. I'm so down for that. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. But yeah, so they took that story and I was, couldn't believe it. I remember going, Are you sure you know how big this thing is, right? They're like, Yeah, it's okay. We've, you know, we've ordered a macro lens. With a <laughs> we've got macro lens. <laughs> like, oh my God, they're doing it. Freaked out. I was like, oh, I couldn't believe they're actually coming to Cornwall to film this hermit crab. I felt so responsible, like for the whole thing. Yeah. I was like, This better be good now, Gillian Burke. What have you got yourself <laughs> <Exactly>. into? <laughs> That, um, that does bring me on to the next question I was going to ask, which was, um, I've heard you talk about, you know, your career path and, you know, it's been a long career path and ups and downs and things, but um, there was a reaction and I've heard you talk about it uh, when you suddenly showed up on our TV screens on BBC Springwatch a couple of years ago and people were like, who is she and where has she come from? And at times there was some hostility like and, and kind of trash talking on social media about the BBC and diversity and, you know, why you'd been hired and things like that. Can you tell us a bit about that and kind of how that felt at the time? Yeah. So deep breath. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It sucked. I'll just say. <laughs> yeah, I bet it did. Um, I saw it and I was like cringing yeah, like, at some of the remarks. I mean, basically, I think for me, the biggest shock was that it had never occurred to me that it would be called into question that um, I, you know, this is something I could do. Having been pretty much, you know, like I said, my first memories were of being, you know, um, just super comfortable in the natural world, even with the yeah. things that make you uncomfortable, like thorns and biting insects and snakes and stuff. Like, you know, I was very, very comfortable in, and, and still am in in I, I I hate saying natural world, but I guess you know any you know non-human environments. Um, yeah. The fact that you know in my kind of family culture, you know environmentalism was well established. In something that you know we yeah. talked about, we discussed. Um, you know, I grew up in a place where we got immediate feedback for any environmental degradation, and what I mean by that is. Um, you know, in, in, I think in the global South that we don't have the, the, the buffers and the comfort blanket that I experience here as someone who lives in the global North, like the global South, you know, if you cut down and clear felt like a hillside, the next time it rains, there's going to be a landslide. Um, and you know, that's just one actual example, something that, you know, I've experienced, um, 
But, you know, I just felt like there's more immediate feedback from the natural world. So environmentalism wasn't even something I had to come across. It was sort of just always present because we're just so much more aware of the immediate impact of water shortages or, um, like I said, you know, dry seasons, deforestation, soil erosion, all that sort of stuff is something I saw actually happen um, as a child as I was growing up. And then, you know, doing a biology degree, spending 15 years working and making natural history films around the world to then all of a sudden realize I was going to have to prove why, prove myself, like, you know, Mm. this is why I've got the gig was a real shock. I'd never thought that that would be called into question. Um, And my reaction to that now looking back was just, I mean, first of all, I just didn't really do social media. I just didn't look. Um, because I just, you know, there's a great saying that like, um, what other people say about me is none of my business. I just was like, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. Um, I'm going to be keep caring about the things I care about and not allow my energy to be sucked into something else. So I just literally thought I won't even look and I manage, I mean, I'm really pleased to say that I had the discipline to do that. And I still do. I just don't engage with any crap, you know. So um, the way I see it, and I think this is partly an age, which is, again, what we were talking about earlier, like I I wear it with pride now, is that I think I've hit an age where I really appreciate every single day. And I really understand that every single day I've been given a budget of time and energy that I'm never getting back. And how I choose Mm. to spend that time and energy is up to me. And... um, you know, the, the only two things that will will change that script are my children. <laughs> but other than that, you know, it's like it's up to me. So I just that was my approach. I just thought I'm just going to keep um, really focused on what it is I'm meant to be doing here. And of course, live, you know, so presenting was one thing. Like I'd done some radio presenting and but live presenting is a whole different kettle of fish. And live presenting in an atmosphere, I'm not sure um, whether my audience is hostile or not, makes the job harder. So I just have to stay focused and very disciplined and just think there will be days where it's going to be clunky and it's going to be awkward and I will stumble. But I'm just going to keep going till I, you know, till this, I grow into this. So that was the kind of approach I, I took. I didn't feel at the time I had the capacity to become some kind of champion for a cause. I literally was like, I have mm. only the capacity to keep my mental health and well-being on track and make sure I'm still yeah. a great mother to my children. Um, it, it, they can they can do the appraisal whether I am actually great, <laughs> by the way. Um, and um, We won't get to my Yeah, <laughs> and I keep serving this thing that I totally believe in, which is, um, you know, people and planet. You know, and I know it sounds so worthy, but I do. I I I don't know how to not how to lie about that. <laughs> I can't. I just no. genuinely believe that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And on like the issue of diversity, I think you know that was part of um, people's you know a minority, but there was a vocal minority talking about, um, you know, you were hired because of your ethnicity and the BBC wants to show more diversity as if that was a bad thing. And I think like being involved in nature conservation and running Ealing Wildlife Group, for example, in a borough of London that is predominantly, you know, 
quite fairly affluent middle class and people. We're very conscious of the fact that the group isn't diverse. And whenever I've done, you know, speaking to local RSPB membership or, or, you know, wherever I've talked, there is a problem in kind of nature and conservation that it tends to be, you know, a sea of grey-haired white people, you know, that are showing up to conservation or nature-based events or even our, our nature reserves. So there's an issue of a lack of diversity um, of ages and of socioeconomic backgrounds and of um, ethnicity as well within just general nature and conservation, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's some well-quoted statistics about the lack of representation in the environmental sector and the nature community. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I would say is, you know, we are a very, very long way. And, and one thing that, you know, on the one hand, I hope that my experience means that no one else has to kind of deal with as much um, of a bumpy entrance, shall we just say, um, yeah. onto a stage. Um, because hopefully, like, you know, everyone's got that out of their system now that I'm here. Um, but I'm not enough, you know, like the work isn't done just because like they've hired me. No. Um, you know, to me, this is just, I don't necessarily, you know, for me, the work is about, um, and it's partly, you know, my own um, thinking. And I think this is what is amazing about the um, the generations, you know, the younger generations now that are coming up through the ranks. I think they are more questioning. I think they're, they're less compromising and I think they're brilliant. Um, I, so what I've become much more aware of um, as a result of younger campaigners and youth activists is that like my own thinking needs to change. Um, I'm so aware of how I have framed so much of my understanding and um, my language around talking about nature, talking about the, the natural world is framed within one very um, dominate, dominating knowledge system, which is basically modern Western science. And yeah. um, the thing that excites me so much now is the realization that there are so many other knowledge systems. And actually, I listened to an amazing talk by, um, she's a former filmmaker and, and now a farmer, a lady called Rebecca Hosking. And she gave the keynote speech at an event called the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which was run at the beginning of yes. January. Amazing yeah. thing. Um, it is yeah, I saw it. truly one of the most inclusive global events I have ever attended of its kind. Um, it, the name Oxford Real Farming kind of, you know, does it a disservice because it doesn't really give you a sense of just how incredible it is. But that was what it, you know, the original founders, that's where they were. Um, I think it was in 2010 yeah. that they founded the conference. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent there. Um, one of the most exciting things was she, she, she encapsulated in her keynote um, a lot of the thinking that I've been kind of playing with because I started really looking at the word eco, you know, which kind of brings us almost full circle to, you know, the eco freaks. But yeah. A few years back, I was giving a talk and it was addressing a small group. It was a room of people um, at the beginning of a three-day workshop about um, sustainable business and how to make your business more sustainable, basically. And they'd asked me to address the group, you know, with an opening talk. And I started using the word sustainable and eco. And, and I was just thinking like that I, I, this, I feel nothing when I say these words. And, um, right. and I kind of broke it down in my head and I thought, actually, you know, 
let's let's look at these words because eco is a sticky word as i call it it has a lot of um meanings attached to it and yeah the the true meaning of the word is almost lost in all of that and some of the meanings are sort of you know empty greenwashing some meanings are derogatory like the eco freaks and the eco warriors of the world yeah. um and i was like well what is this word and it's actually it's from the ancient greek which is oikos which means home and i just and for me like when i say home i'm like oh my gosh that is such a beautiful word you know home is yeah. the thing that it it you know i guess it, you know and i i i, blo- I my blog now is much, is very much around these these concepts but home for me is the word that um maybe because of my own experience that i'm someone who no longer sort of um lives where i was born that my kind of ancestral roots are very very mixed you know from asian african various you know crisscrosses and stuff so i don't have like an easy kind of reach when i say the word home and even now like yeah. i still you know i don't really live in like i live in a rented place and it's kind of a in between and you know so i i feel quite rootless so home like is is um imbued with a lot of longing and a lot of you know that feeling of like belonging and safety and um but something i don't have and i think a lot of people feel like that in different ways and particularly with you know all the things we've talked about in the last hour so sort of the rate of change with technology mm-hmm. um the rate of change with environmental degradation and because these things are changing so quickly we are noticing it within lifetimes now it's no longer intergenerational it's actually within a lifetime that we see these changes yeah. and there's an idea that when things change so quickly you start to miss home even though you're home and and it creates this feeling of anxiety and um a lack of belonging and loneliness and there's a whole kind of um like shadow of emotions that start to swirl around when you start to take apart and pull apart the fabric the thing that gives us a sense of home so i i like yeah. to kind of, you know so for me like rather than talk about ecosystems and habitats and i can talk ecosystems and habitats till the cows come home Yeah. Pun, <laughs> an expression but i'm very excited about um people like rebecca hosking who gave this amazing keynote about how how on her farm they no longer call talk about um wildlife they talk about wild things they talk about wild spaces yeah. instead of habitats they talk they, and and she made this wonderful observation that i've never come across um through her work which was that indigenous cultures most of them don't have the word for nature and she and she looked at that i heard that read that yeah. recently yeah and she looked at that and she and that's because they don't uh, many indigenous knowledge systems and that includes british indigenous knowledge systems didn't separate humans out of the natural world so for me just to kind of answer you know your question about diversity and inclusion like the work is so much more than um you know kind of making space at the table the work is yeah. about getting a whole new table and i really you know i it yeah. sounds extreme but i really believe that now that um you know we we constantly talk about our connection with nature and our relationship with the natural world and how can we live in harmony and i'm 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 sort of arriving at a place where i think it's almost like and i and i count myself as one of the people that that needs to be guided because i don't think i have the knowledge 
You know, I don't think I have the real connection and relationship with the natural world that would actually really bring about that harmony um, that that we we long for. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so I sort of feel like um, my kind of, you know, the, 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 the storm and the teacup that my arriving on the watches created is, you know, just the tiniest little step towards something really exciting and it's so yeah. much more than what people think it is when they talk about diversity inclusion. For me, it's like, yes, of course we need we need that representation um, so that it's it re- it reflects the, the society and the population. Um, but it's even more than that. We're we're talking about diversity in the way we see the world and the way we talk about it and yes, the language yeah. we use and the cultures that are represented and um, the knowledge systems. So it's it's a really exciting place, and um, and I I try to move as quickly away from the negativity as possible because it doesn't have to be. Um, no. And yeah, and I just you know for me I'm I'm very excited about that feeling of like I I'm look I feel like I need to be guided through this as much as an, as the next person. Because really, like, I'm so, like, probably two or three or four generations away from, like, real ancestral knowledge. Um, Mm. And so, I, you know, I think that's one of the dangers at the moment is that a lot of the the kind of voices and the organizations and the thinking that's leading the charge in terms of how we address the climate crisis and the ecological crisis are still thinking out of the space that brought got us into the mess in the first place. And and to me, that's like, I don't know if that's going to work. yeah, but then again, yeah. a very powerful bunch. So who knows? <laughs> so, yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I agree with you that you know the the kind of early shoots are promising, aren't they? I mean, twenty twenty, we've talked about it. It was like the year that kept on giving, and it was you know lots of negatives, but there was also some positives you can dwell on. A lot of people, you know, connected more with nature, realized the power of of nature to like. Um, boost us in in tough times and things. Um, We had Black Lives Matter, which obviously came out of extremely uh, kind of harrowing and and negative circumstances that got the world to sit up and listen. And actually we can see, you know, organizations even, you know, within the environmental sector now making efforts, I guess, Um, you know, whether it's just representation of of diversity or or other things. But um, there are some positives that, that came out of 2020 kind of, turning the world on its head and getting us all to slow down and think more. And and I think for people like us, I suppose, that do suffer with eco-anxiety, would you agree that actually it's, it feels like a very optimistic time now that things are improving um, quite a bit or at least, you know, look like they're going to kind of go the right way or, or be a bit more considered um, towards the environment and climate change? Would you agree with that? Mm, well, the way I see it is I, you know... <sighs> Uh, well, okay, so I have to think about how I framed that. I think 2020 was a bit of a rehearsal. It didn't feel like it in mm. 2020. It definitely felt like, you know, um, that was that was the big gig. But um, now that we're in 2021, I think, oh, actually, you know, um, I, you know, we're still getting our asses kicked by COVID, let's face it. And um, yeah. And I'm not really sure that the the solutions being offered up to at least deal with the pandemic are as uh, it's not, there's not going to be a line, a line in the sand that shows like marks no. the end of this. Yeah. We're doing, um, here, like, yeah. you know, I think we've got quite a long 
way ahead to to find something that where you know people live without these restrictions again so that's a little bit pessimistic sorry um no but i just think that to me that's a realistic way of looking at it um that you know there's certain things like putting all our hope on the vaccination alone fixing this is maybe um Yeah, I worry about that because, um, you know, we're seeing it already that, you know, the variants um, and mutations are cropping up, it seems, at at an ever-quickening pace, or at least they're being identified more quickly now. So, um, you know, I think we know that that's going to be a challenge in terms of um, vaccine escape and keeping up with the rates, the mutation rates um, and the variants that come up. So that's a, that's a challenge, and I think that all happening in the same year as as um, well other key things, COP twenty six in November in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's you know the big climate meeting for anyone who's yeah, not familiar. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's. I think we are at a point where it's this. It's still hard to know which way things are going to go. And I think, mm. um, you know, I guess the, the, the wording, I can't remember the exact wording, but, the, you know, one of the things that the IPCC report, um, so this International Panel on Climate Change report, that is sort of the, yeah. you know, the benchmark, I suppose, in terms of um, what's required to pull us out, is it, there's one part of it that is uncompromising, which is that we need to use less energy. And um, mm. which kind of goes back to the whole slow down, chill out thing. Um, but um, yeah. but it's an interesting concept because at the moment I'm not seeing that being talked about. What I'm seeing is um, decarbonizing and switching to renewables. But if we don't use less energy, I don't know if that will just paint us into a different corner. And I think that is one of the things yeah. that I'm most concerned about, that the... The, the desire and the, if, if I'm honest, desperation to just have a few, like a year, a few months, a few days, a few weeks of not constantly worrying, that eco-anxiety, as you call it, um, it mm. you know, is so desperate to, to just have someone tell us it's going to be okay, that I think we might, yeah. you know, kind of sign up to stuff that is only going to cause potentially um, other problems further down the line. And I think, you know, um, in human history, we've, we've demonstrated that we're not very good at um, foreseeing unintended consequences of new innovation. So that's the bit that I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, I just wish we'd just slow it down a little bit. And um, and I think like going back to the, the eco-freak comment, like if anyone listening doesn't know, that came from our prime minister in the same speech where he was talking about build, 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 basically. And previously he said, you know, stop the newt counting delays in our system. And almost, you know, it was crazy to hear him talk about the solution to this is to like, again, progress and build our way out, build more infrastructure, you know, let nature be a secondary thought and and let's crack on because, you know, we have to recover the economy almost was his you know primary goal yeah um, and I, I think and that was very disheartening it, it, wasn't well it? yeah I mean it you know it 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 was made made clear kind of you know where it, 
where the government priorities, yeah, priorities lay. Yeah. But I think, um, like even now, the, the government's own commissioned um, report, the Desgupta Review, um, which was released yeah. last week, which essentially, you know, outlines that nature does need to be um, sort of in the heart of any economic planning. Um, the, the current system, you know, can't continue as it is. Um I guess it, it just takes me, and I, you know, the, I'm just going to say, I guess I am a bit of a hippie because. That's allowed. <laughs> it, is, it is, but I'm just going to put it out there because, um, because I get, my heart sinks when I feel like the people that are problem solving and troubleshooting have still, are still in the same thinking space that the problems mm. came, arise, arose from in the first place. And I think that's where, I've yet to see something, you know, someone in a real position of power, um, and that doesn't mean they don't exist, I've just yet to see it, that, yeah, that has um, a different agenda, like, you know, where well-being and where GDP is not, you know, the indicator of progress um, and, uh, you know, the success of the government. And even by sort of economic, you know, economists would, would say it's it's an imperfect measure anyway. Um, so there's some really fundamental things that need to be looked at. And I think, you know, actually maybe I'm doing myself a disservice, call myself a hippie. There's, you know, a lot of people calling this, you know, the, the World Economic Forum, the sort of Davos you know, club, um, yeah. have declared capitalism as dead. So, you know, I don't think it is actually as out there as, you know, maybe it used to be to, to declare that. But, you know, what's, what takes its place yeah. and who gets to to determine that um, is what worries me. You know, there's um, an amazing yeah. initiative, um, the Global Citizens Assembly, where it, it's an attempt to literally network anyone who wants to be part of the conversation to talk about what the future should look like. And, um, you know, that, yeah. that feels like it shouldn't be the people who already have vested interests trying to troubleshoot us out of this situation because it, they're only ever going to be looking out for their own yeah. interests, it, it seems to me. Yeah. Have you, um, I presume you've heard of Kate Rayworth and Donut Economics? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, kind of trying to tackle that problem of meeting all of our needs and the planet's needs at the same time rather than just focusing on... Yeah. Um, our economies and capitalism and things, but anyone who hasn't looked at it, you know, there's some great YouTube videos where um, Kate Rayworth explains it uh, really, really well. Julian, I think, like, I, I think we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we, we are running um, low on time. Um, so one of the uh, things I wanted to talk to you about, which is super current and and um, been recently following online, as you have and, and highlighting, is to let's talk about, you know, Boris and his plan for progress and things and and the government's um, plan to stick with HS2 and, you know, despite all of the things we've been through and despite, you know, the changing working landscape and whether people actually really need a high-speed rail line now into London um, post-pandemic. But there's some, like, there's some fantastic things being done by by campaigners um, on the HS2 campaign. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think you're you're very much a self-confessed champion of the underdog and and the oppressed and people who are you know really sacrificing for for these kind of causes, right? Yeah. Um, so 
yeah so actually i'd have to kind of take you back to when i was doing so when i when we were on air with winter watch on bbc2 um in end of january into february um what i was aware of was um that i mean i've been sort of you know following the campaigners the hs2 um campaigners um through through a lot of the work that's been going on over you know the last few years um but what really like turned things around for me was um i came off winter watch and you know we'd had a successful run um the you know by and large it seemed that you know the series was well received and i had as i always do a lot of fun doing it and it just felt really difficult to step off that platform if you like and and feel good about myself knowing that while i was doing all of that there was a handful of people seven people who had dug themselves into tunnels in Euston square in a really last ditch desperate attempt to um to to ask for another review of whether this massive infrastructure project the biggest one since world war 2 um is still necessary feasible viable um yeah. given the pandemic and um and i guess for me what really got me was i was watching some of the like social media posts that they're putting out on twitter and instagram and it doesn't help that i'm really not good in confined spaces i can do heights i can do snakes i can do underwater i can do a lot of stuff but i'm not good in confined spaces i get very very claustrophobic um right. so just watching these um videos was making me feel short of breath and i just thought yeah i don't know how they're doing this because as they're recording these videos it's like you know rubble crumbling on their heads and there's mm. a, a very real risk of the, these tunnels collapsing um their tunnels are flooding and they can't some of them you know they're not even tall high enough for them to sit up in so they're just literally lying down and they they've been and they're still there for, you know and they've been there for for weeks now and i simply just thought um it just felt i just hit it hit into my conscious my conscience like in a way that i couldn't ignore it because i just thought yeah. how can i be this person who talks about the natural world and talks so passionately about how much i love it and want to save it and all that stuff and dedicate my life but i know i'll just swear now sure as shit there's no way i'm going into a tunnel you know mm-hmm. and so yeah. i just thought right so if i can't be that person what's the next best thing which is basically to make sure people know that there is a handful of people down there who really are risking their lives for something that um you know i think is almost is very widely accepted all the big nature ngos have put their names to reports uh, outlining the amount of destruction that this project is going to um leak yeah. out you know that the feasibility studies the poisoning of water tables i mean there's so much now the of ancient woodlands yeah, all this kind of stuff exactly and so so i just you know made that decision to just start trying to amplify um the campaigners and what they're doing and there're yeah. two things that made me sort of feel uncomfortable about it one is that well by by amplifying it i hope you know i i ju- i just you know i don't know um you know the 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 sort of the line in the sand in terms of the law and who's on the right side of the law um i'm still trying to educate myself around that 
I don't know a lot of the history behind the project. Um, again, I'm scrambling to educate myself about that. But what I do know is that, um, you know, at the very least, it's not being reported enough about, and I don't understand no. why that is. Um, it's not in the mainstream media. No, and it's, it's, it's happening right in central London. So it's not a mm. question of access. So, so those things trouble me. So that was why I just, just took that decision to just amplify it on my own social media, um, on my Instagram, and to talk about it. Because I do think that it's one of those things that could become like a really flagship moment um, where mindsets pivot and yeah. um, that it opens up discussions that as, as yet aren't happening and and so I think it's it's an it's a campaign that is in its in its in in its potential to impact is so much greater than what they are actually campaigning about. So yes, of course, it's about ancient woodlands. You know, they are irreplaceable. I don't care how many trees you plant in replace of those. They hold the seeds, um, the unique communities, microbial, fungal communities, to help seed more woodland. And if we lose that, what we have are like naive forests are planted in ways that um, don't have that inbuilt resilience. You know, so for me, from like an ecological point of view, it does not make sense to lose um, these sort of refugium. refugium. Genetic diversity. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so those, you know, those are the kind of things that are rare, you know, I'm passionate about communicating as much as possible that, you know, the idea of breaking down habitats into units so we can... you know, sort of trade them in natural capital. I I just can't subscribe to that simply from an ecological point of view. It's not even an ethical um, question for me. I just think, you know, the more we learn about interdependency of species, the more we're realizing that those boundaries are blurred. It is no longer easy to say where one species begins and another ends when, you know, the human body is connections, isn't it, that we don't even know about yet. Exactly. You know, there's more bacterial DNA in in, in the human body than there is human DNA. So it's like, oh, so where where does the human part of the end and the bacterial begin? So anyway, you know, so for me that, you know, this isn't just a kind of like ethics issue. There's some real good science that suggests that this is a crazy thing to be doing at this point in an ecological and climate crisis. So for me, a lot of money and pride wrapped up in it now. Yeah. Right? And so I, you know, it's just trying to support um, what some very, you know, the courage of their conviction is, is undeniable. I know I wouldn't be able to do what they do. Um, so, yeah, like I said, the next best thing is to just help amplify that message and get it out there and and at least, you know, get to the point where the project is reviewed again and reviewed properly. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Um, anyone listening, if you want to follow that, I think it's um, HST Rebellion is the Instagram account, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, let's end on a, a more optimistic and positive note, maybe. <laughs> um <laughs> Because, as I say, we could talk for far longer. But um, what are some of the highlights, Gillian, of like your time on the watches? Um, I'm sure some stuff goes on behind the scenes and, and things that uh, are quite fun. But what have been your highlights of, of kind of being in that role um, for the watches the last few years? Um, oh my gosh! Right, so it it changes. Um, I, I work had the best team, so I just really love like the crew that I work with we just um we just have such a laugh and that makes such a difference to you know yeah. just having a team that you enjoy working with um 
so I think that's what got me through the the, the, the bumpy stage at the beginning as well, you know, um, yeah. my team. And um, the opportunity to see parts of the of Britain and the British Isles that I've never really had that opportunity to see. Shetland was amazing, but also um, getting to know parts of Yorkshire and the Durham Valley, um, that, that was like some of the most and still is like some of my favorite um, RSPB reserves, Oldmore, Fairburnings. Um, that that you know those those stories of natural recovery where those reserves have grown out of like these post-industrial landscapes is just phenomenal. Yeah. But also just yeah. the communities as well that are involved with that work. Um, that whole area to me is just like it's a gem. It's a real gem. Um, yeah. Which I know I was going to snigger at because I can promise you I mean that. You know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> honest, really? No, yes, it is. Um, and saying, you know, like, so I just feel like I've had a chance to get to know um, Britain in a way that I hadn't before. So, you know, I came yeah. here as an adult to do my degree. I then, you know, circuitously ended up working in natural history TV, but mostly abroad. And it was really once I had my kids. And I was, okay, this is it. This, I'm putting my roots down. And, you know, it's just been this amazing opportunity to get to know the country. Um, and, yeah, you know, th- those, that, that would kind of be it. You know, it's just getting yeah. to know well, people and places better. There's one more thing we can't forget. What about Trevor the Beaver? <laughs> he is such a star, isn't he? Trevor the Beaver. I know. I mean, Rolling him out again. Yeah, yeah I know. I, th- I feel like he's like, you know what? Like, you need to talk to my agent next <laughs> for, for any more appearances. <laughs> Absolutely. Hell yeah. I know. I think yeah. I referred to, you know, Trevor's grommets a bit too many times as well. I think he's had enough of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think we can get away with an episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast without mentioning beavers because, you know, I'm yeah. a big fan. <laughs> They're like a, become an icon or an emblem for like hope and uh, restoration of nature, haven't they? Yeah, they are. And you know, the best thing about it is, is they don't know. <laughs> I just no, I know. They just carry just on. Bumbling around, you know doing wood. Do, you know, yeah. that damn. I love the thing about beavers as well, which is that they like, all their behaviors, you know, when it comes to dam building is, is driven by the sound of the trickling water. And I just have this feeling yeah. of like, you know, that they kind of that drip, drip, drip of a tap at night, which is like, you know, drives you to kind of you know, <laughs> distraction. And that's what yeah. leaders are like. They're like, we really don't they care about one the crisis because there's some water trickling in the corner of yeah. the beaver pond. And it's the last thing they do. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, and one thing that I've really enjoyed, actually, you started blogging more, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love writing. Yeah. It's it's a great it's a great outlet for me. So I do enjoy that. Yeah. So head on over. Is that that's on your website, isn't it? Oh God, you want me to plug my blog? Oh my God. Yes. Plug your blog. So plug, plug, plug. <laughs> go to go to Jillian's blog. Yes, it's on my website. Yeah. So um, yeah. I was my uh, Jillian Jillian Burke dot com. Oh, that sounds weird. Anyway, well done. There's my blog. a good good plug. <laughs> And the thing that I forgot in a few episodes that I used to do, um, but I started doing it again with guests, is um, for listeners, do you have three Instagram accounts, inspirational Instagram accounts that you would recommend people follow? Oh, wow. I'm on the spot now, but uh, Um, even one or two that you think are are worth a follow. Oh, my gosh. Okay. 
I have to think about this because um, that is putting on my spot. Um, Sorry. <laughs> what brings me joy? Okay, let me think about things that bring me joy. If I could find my phone, I could just look up what things I'm looking at. Well, I mean, there's amazing... Um, I'll tell you, actually, here's one. So let me just find the actual name so I give it to you properly. Okay, so one of my environmental heroes is... Um, a lady, well, the late Professor Wangari Mathai. She was a Kenyan environmentalist. Um, yeah. And she, so her daughter continues her work. And um, their, their Instagram account is called Greenbelt Movement. So okay. they're worth a follow because they haven't been that active um, for a while, but are beginning, uh, you know, to sort of, not necessarily campaigning, but they're sort of beginning a movement um, in March, which is to mark, um, you know, sort of to commemorate her, her Wangari Mathai and her work. So that would okay. be an amazing thing to get behind because it's um, the principle behind her tree planting campaign was so simple. Um, it was a grassroots movement that that really just went directly to rural communities and her work was really amazing because what she did was rather than go and tell people what they should do, um, she went and asked people, how can I help? And it was such a simple shift in right. approach that created the, the conversations and the dialogue that helped her to identify how planting trees would improve the daily experience of people's lives. And because of that, the, the movement grew and gained so much traction so yeah although it, it feels like a very niche movement in a very far-flung part of the world in east africa where maybe in britain that doesn't seem very relevant there's so much we could learn so i would definitely recommend following that account okay i've just followed yeah and let's see scott duncan um is a climate well he's a meteorologist and climate communicator and yeah. his account is called Scott Duncan WX. He is, in my opinion, by far the most effective um, climate communicator I have come across. Um, right. He produces brilliant, very easily digestible graphics on current weather events, but also climate trends. And okay. without it being political, without it being, con well, it's not even about controversial. It's just he presents the data in a way that makes, in my opinion, makes it really easy to know what, what to do. And I think I get asked this question a lot in my line of work is, you know, what can we do? You know, once you've presented people with all yeah. these massive challenges, then the question is like that feeling of helplessness. What can we do? Yeah. Well, what I would say is follow Scott Duncan and, um, and just sit back and, and you will be educated in a way that is um, easy, painless, and I, I think very trustworthy. Um, and I guess easy to pass on and talk to other people. Yeah. About. And for me, it just, it becomes easier to know what to do when you understand the science behind what's going on. And I think that's what right. he does so effectively and without very much drama and very clearly um, and very in a very engaged way. So he's a brilliant account. I really like um, Scott Duncan. Great, I've given him a follow as well. And the final one. It's such a great opportunity, isn't it? I should have said this to you to start. That's okay. Yeah. Um, I kind of forget. 
to ask it most of the time. It's just such a great opportunity to kind of give. I think it is. Yeah, so I want to just really give it. Um, okay. Do you know what? Um, because I could mention a lot of nature people, um, Lizzie Daly, Hannah Stipple, Sophie, um, Sophie Pavel. There's loads of people that I, you know, I love their work and their content. Um, but I think, you know, the, the nature community that, you know, we're probably all in that space already. So we're a bit of an echo chamber sometimes. Yeah. Right? So there's a campaign that I'm so fascinated by. And I think it's one of those things where if we are talking about being more diverse and more inclusive in the environmental nature sector, then it's also about reaching out of the concerns and campaigns and issues that preoccupy our thinking, but finding yeah. things that are kind of, you know, sort of almost riding alongside what we're what we talk about. So this campaign is called Bite Back 2030. And um, there it's a a campaign led by a group of young activists. um, And and they're really angry because what they are campaigning about is the targeting of fast food and junk food advertising at teenagers and young adults. So they're really, I guess, working in that space of food justice and um and health and well-being but you know as we know food and what we eat and how we produce it is such a big part of the story of environment and climate and ecology yeah. um that i think some join up with and supporting campaigns like that would would really help to start bringing in new and fresh voices and new and fresh perspectives um and helping to like cross-pollinate cross-fertilize ideas and and really support each other through through what is you know a time of of really rapid change. So bike back twenty thirty is my third Brilliant. final and a youth, youth <laughs> group as well is great, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, Gillian, thank you so much. I mean, we've waffled on for know, an hour sorry. and a half, which it's is probably record time. No, 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 it's brilliant. It's good to have the opportunity, um, finally, to, to have a good chat. Um, but anything else coming up for you? Or I guess you're kind of probably on the road to preparing for Spring Watch next, right? Yeah, yeah. As you can tell, I'm not great at, you know, plugging my stuff um you know there are things happening follow my instagram i'll, I'll tell you now jillian's yeah. <laughs> voice Perfect. on instagram and then i'll yeah. keep people Great. informed of what i'm up to um but thanks so much sean i've had so much fun and i'm sorry i talk so much <laughs> don't apologize i was only joking <laughs> um brilliant having you on thanks thanks again so much and uh guys if you've enjoyed this episode um season five hopefully will be coming soon if you do enjoy the podcast please subscribe and uh, give us a rating or review it really helps it get out to a wider audience and if you'd like to donate to the cause uh, because it's all self-funded you can do so via ACAST supporter so it's over and out from myself and wonderful guest Gillian Burke thanks a lot